But if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to uh, Mark 15, uh, again, thank you guys for, for making this possible. And really, I'm just looking forward to the months ahead. Uh, this is the first time in a year and a half that we've been able to say, hey, invite all the friends you want. We've got plenty of room for everybody. And um, we've got more chairs and storage. We left lots of space. And so let's use this opportunity to reach as many people with the message of Jesus as we can. Let's see what he does over these next couple months and be praying, be inviting friends. Um, and, and this is cool, too. Uh, uh, Paul Cross, one of our elders, and Rob West, they built this sweet barnwood pulpit. And this thing is like heavy, and it's just a beast. So um, might make the sermons better. But um, I know that, uh, that those of you who were here uh, over the, these last couple of weeks making this place work, you did it not because you wanted us to spend an hour talking about the building. Um, you did it because you want to see the name of Jesus made great in Rochester, and that this is a, a tool that he'll be using to, to reach a lot of people, and a tool that we'll be using to uh, have room for all of our friends. And so rather than spend an hour talking about the building that we're incredibly thankful for, we're going to spend 45 minutes in Mark chapter 15 talking about the cross that we're more thankful for, that um, that's the reason for this meeting place. That's the reason for all the work that went in this week. And, uh, and this place is, is nice and more than adequate to meet all of our needs, but ultimately this is a building, it's a tool, and it, we're using it for the glory of Jesus so that more people can hear about the message of his cross. And so, so let's pray and jump in. Uh, Father, we just pray uh, for our time this morning. We thank you for, um, for this great place to meet. And Lord, we know that this room is, is awesome and glorious, but the glory of this room is small in comparison to the glory of your cross. And so, Lord, as much as we, uh, as our jaws dropped when we first walked in and saw this room, um, let our reaction to this room pale in comparison to our reaction to your son. Uh, Lord, those of us who've known you for a while, I pray that this wouldn't be old. I pray this, is, this wouldn't be something that doesn't affect us anymore. But as we look at the cross, as we look at this heart of Christianity in Mark 15, I pray that you would renew our faith in you again. Uh, wake us up from any ways that we've been uh, sleepy, from any ways that we have, have made peace with sin. Help us to see you and your love and your grace in this cross. Help us to see your virtues and your glory. And Lord, I pray that that would change us and that would be a source of great joy for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's tough sometimes when, when you go to church to actually know where the center of gravity is, to, to kind of know what is the most important thing, where is all the weight supposed to be. In fact, I think if you didn't know much about Christianity at all, and you just started visiting churches, you, you might come out with a lot of good things that you thought were the most important things in, in Christianity. You know, for example, you might come out thinking that being a good husband or a good dad is what Christianity is all about, or being a good mom is what Christianity is all about, and that's a good thing. Or you might come out thinking that um, the gifts of the Spirit are what Christianity is all about. Or engaging in social justice is where the heart is, where the center is. Or living moral lives, that's our heart. That's what we're all about. You may have uh, gone to church and heard messages that made you come out thinking that's the most important thing in Christianity. You may have even gone to a church that impressed you before, and you came out and you were impressed with the buildings or with the quality of music or with the quality of the communicator or how well things were run. And again, those things by themselves are not bad things. I mean, if we do something, let's try to do it the best we can for the glory of God. But it's easy to take any of those good things and any of those results of believing in Christianity and make them the most important, make them the ultimate things. And when we make those things ultimate, when we make them the big deal, when we make the center of gravity where it's not supposed to be, it ends up wrecking not just Christianity, but it wrecks all those things too. 
Um, that, that if we make Christianity all about being a good dad or living moral lives, which should definitely be some of the fruits of believing in the gospel, if that's what it becomes all about, then in the long run, it actually hurts our ability to be good dads or to live moral lives because we don't have a foundation that we're standing on. Uh, when I was a kid, um, there used to be the hostess store. Did, went out of business a few months back. Um, but, uh, and, and it was the place where when hostess was about to expire, all their products went to the hostess store. So I assume that's five years in. Um, you know, it's been sitting on a shelf at Wegmans. Nobody's bought them. And so they move them off to the hostess store and then put them on the shelves there because now they've only got a year or something before they expire. And we, um, as a family, we ate pretty well. We weren't like um, hostess nuts or anything. But apparently one day my mom went and there was a sale at the hostess store on Ho-Ho's. And those were a, a dessert for some times. And so she loaded up with cases and cases and cases of Ho-Ho's and brought them home and and stuck them in the basement freezer um, because you can freeze those things and then they keep forever. And so, um, so we just had stacks and stacks and stacks of ho-hos, which are glorious, in our basement freezer. And that was designed to be, you know, desserts and snacks for years to come. But then I found the stash. And I remember as a kid taking an entire box of ho-hos, and they're good frozen, and taking them and just parking in front of the TV and just pounding ho-ho after ho-ho, just eating tons and tons of these things. And um, what ended up happening, you know, the first few days were wonderful, but then after a week or so, it wasn't so good. Um, I didn't feel good. I got sick because of it. And it actually made me lose my taste for ho-hos for a couple of years. And um, fortunately, that comes back. And so... (laughs) So this week, when, when Ho-Ho's come back, I think it's like this week is the return of Hostess products. It's, I'm back on board. I'm, I'm okay. You got to get back on that horse and keep riding. But, um, but for a while, not only was I sick physically, but I lost my appetite for that wonderful thing that, that Ho-Ho's are. And, and this is the way really all of God's good gifts in the world are. Um, He's given us all good things to enjoy, the Bible says. He's blessed us so much. I mean, he's blessed us with this place. He's blessed us with the gifts of his family. He's blessed us with the gift of even his law and being able to obey it and live in a moral way. He's blessed us with those things. But if we make those things ultimate, if we make those things the staple, then what ends up happening is those things in the long run get wrecked and get sickened by it. Um, If we make anything other than Jesus Christ and his cross ultimate in our lives— it just makes a really bad God. And that's a constant temptation for all of us. It's a temptation for us to take good things, good gifts from God, and make those the most important things, make those the ultimate things. And so when we open up the scriptures every week, we do this because we want to see the ultimate thing as ultimate. We want to see Jesus as ultimate because only he is a good king and a good God. We want to see his word, his gospel, and his cross as the main thing. And then all of those other things, being a good dad or mom, living a moral life, all those things, those will all flow from that. But we need to keep Jesus ultimate because any other good thing that we lift up to that ultimate place just ends up wrecking us. In fact, even Jim Carrey said this. He said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. And we all have this answer in our mind that when I finally get to this place in life, when I finally get this thing, when I finally achieve something, when this is finally mine, then I'll be happy, then I'll have joy, then I'll have that ultimate thing and be able to have peace But people who have gone there and lived that way and experienced all those things we think would give us joy and peace, they all say, I can't find it there. I mean, you you read through the Bible and and you see Solomon um, saying in the book of Ecclesiastes, I've tried all these things and they're all vanity. They're all chasing after the wind. 
God gave us the blessing of having this guy who experienced absolutely everything, had everything that the world has to offer, and he said, there's nothing in it that'll satisfy me. There's nothing that'll give me peace. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. There's no such thing as ultimate peace outside of God, and there's no place that we can go for ultimate joy besides the cross of Jesus Christ. And really, that's an ironic thing, that the cross is the place that we can go for ultimate joy, because the cross was an instrument of death. I mean, it's, it was the equivalent of like the electric chair or a hangman's noose or a firing squad. And we look at the cross and we say, that's the place we turn for not only joy, but for life. I mean, that's ironic. Nobody says, you know, when I feel gloomy and sad, I just think about people being executed and I feel better. Um, we don't say that. Nobody says when you start to get down, think of a hangman's noose, and then that'll make all of your cares go away. Uh, it doesn't do that. We, we don't think of instruments of death to bring us joy. But in this case, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is our so- source of ultimate joy and ultimate life. Now, when we talk about the cross, which we do every week, but this passage specifically deals with the cross of Jesus, you're always going to not say far more than you actually say. We're going to leave way more unsaid about the cross today than we will say, because this is everything. All of history hinges on the cross. All of Christianity hinges on it. All of our lives, if we've come to know Jesus, everything flows from and comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. So I just don't know how to do Mark 15 justice. There are a lot of different angles that we could take, a million different facets of this diamond that we could look into. And so we're just going to look at a few here. I mean, Jesus on this cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The people who were putting him up there on the cross, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know who they were crucifying. They didn't know who he was. And we're going to see today in this passage that they also didn't know what they were saying. Um, And we're going to look at the things that these people said about Jesus in mockery while they were crucifying him, that for us, if we'll believe that those things are actually true, they become our source of greatest joy. We're going to look at what D.A. Carson in his book Scandalous calls the ironies of the cross. The ways that people said things about Jesus on the cross in mockery, that if we believe the truth of them, we'll find our greatest joy. Because this really is what Christianity is all about. We look at the cross, which looks foolish and is an instrument of death and should never be a source of joy, and we say that's also an instrument of life and ultimate joy. And the people who looked at Jesus when he was being crucified, they spit at him and they, they looked at him and what they saw as shameful as Christians we can see as the source of joy. What they saw as awful we can see as glorious. What they thought was failure we can see as the greatest triumph and the greatest success. What they thought looked, made Jesus look foolish we can say made him exceedingly wise. In fact, 1 Corinthians says this when it talks about the cross. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe." For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
So he looks at the cross and he says, yeah, it's foolish if you don't believe it. But if you believe in it, you find that all the foolishness of the cross looks like wisdom because it's God's wisdom. And so we're going to see these people mock Jesus in this passage. And we're going to see that they, the way that they mock him and treat him like he's a foolish king, like he makes foolish claims, like he's a foolish conqueror and like he's a foolish Christ. But if we believe the truth behind their mockery, it'll change us. So Mark 15, verse 21 they're headed to the cross, and it says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So Jesus is brought to be crucified. And up on the cross, they put a little sign in mockery that says, this is the king of the Jews. And you can see why it would be mockery, because kings in their days were the people with the most power. They were the people who ruled and reigned, and you did what they say. Um, They're not like kings and queens in our day, where, where really, if somebody is still a king or a queen of a country today, they don't have too much power Um, They're really just a flag for their country. Um, You know, people uh, love the queen in England, but it's not because of all the power she has. It's because she kind of represents them. Um, Nobody's afraid of her. Nobody's afraid of of her tyranny or anything. She just represents them, and so that's why they have a queen. That's why they like the queen. That's why they keep royalty around, because it's, it's almost like their flag. But in their day, these kings had real power. They weren't even politicians where people could tell them what to do or where they had to deal with constituencies too much. They just exercised reign and fear and terror. And so there was nobody more powerful in the world than a king. And here's Jesus, who just a couple days before rode into town like a king. He came in on a donkey. They're worshiping him and praising him. They're, they're laying out their palm leaves like a red carpet, welcoming the king to town. They're yelling out, save us now, worshiping him as he comes in. And he did say that he was the king. That he wasn't just any king, he was the king to end all kings. He was the ultimate king. And here's this ultimate king, this guy who claimed to have ultimate power, and he's hanging up on a cross, dying. So if he was a king at all, he was a failed one. He was an ousted one. So they mocked him. Now remember who he is. I mean, he's, he's God. And even on the cross, he never ceased to be God. I mean, 40 years before this, he was in heaven being worshipped by legions of angels, And now here's this guy claiming to be king, hanging on a cross, being mocked by a little band of soldiers. He had all this glory and all this might and all this majesty, and he laid aside that kingly crown, and he came down to to be a true king. Now, they did nothing but mock him. They put a scarlet robe on him to mock his claim to be king. They took a crown made out of thorns and beat it into his head and said, how do you like that crown, Mr. King? They cried out, hail, king of the Jews, as they struck him, and then put a little sign over his head that said he's the king of the Jews. They were mocking, but on this end of things, we know that their words were true. And if we'll believe this, and this should be a source of huge joy for us, that even though they mocked him like he was a foolish king, we know that he's the only true king. And the truth is, everybody has a king. Everybody has someone or something that's ultimate in their life, something that drives them, something that, that sh- tells them what to do, whether it's something we're trying to attain, something we're trying to achieve, uh, someone whose voice has more sway over us than anybody else's. And the truth is, there is no ultimately good king except for Jesus. 
And we all have to serve somebody. We all have to live for something. But anything that we live for just ends up wrecking us. We've all got it. I mean, Bob Dylan even said, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, maybe the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So there's someone or something that's ultimate to all of us. And the news that God came to live among us and to be the only true and wise and good king is the best news that anyone could ever hear. That he came to reign and his reign is good. And so while they mocked him as a foolish king, we know that he's a wise king. And the next thing they mock is the foolish claims that he made. Mark 15, verse 27 It says, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So Jesus had made a crazy claim, a claim that he could destroy a temple and rebuild it three days later. He said this in John 2. He had gone into the temple and he had flipped over tables and the people come up to him in verse 18. It says, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I mean, that's a totally outlandish claim to power, that you could tear down a temple and rebuild it in three days. Because the temple was somewhere around 46 years in progress already, and it wasn't done. I mean, in their day, a building project of that size, the architect would design it, but then he wouldn't be alive when it was finished. It was just understood, okay, I'll make these designs and we'll start building, but it's going to be someone who comes after me who's going to be supervising the completion of this building because projects were just epic in their day. And this was before the days of extreme makeover home edition when you could tear down a house and and build a new one in seven days and it's all together, at least it looks like it's all together on camera. Um, This was a big claim for him to be making. I mean, we saw it this week. The remodel here was just absolutely epic. Um, Patching walls out there, and there's like enough moisture in the walls that I guess the heat from the plaster that we were putting on the walls when um, when it was like drying, I don't know anything about this stuff, caused it to pop back out. And so we're patching walls and bigger holes are coming and it's just popping, it's going back and forth. And this was a one week project really to get this place ready. The temple made even a sweet place like this pale in comparison. And it was huge and glorious. And here comes Jesus claiming this power, tear it down, and three days later, I'll be able to build this again. Now, they mocked that claim because you you don't have power like that and then hang on a cross. But if we believe the truth of that claim, then it's good news for us. The good news is that what Jesus was talking about was his body. That the body of his temple, or the temple of his body was going to be torn down. He was going to die. And three days later, he was going to rise from the dead, which actually showed more power than just rebuilding a building real fast. And this is good news because the fact that Jesus is the temple that he was talking about tells us that he's with us wherever we go. I mean, this is why, and I know I, we can't really call this a temple, but at one point this was a Masonic temple. Um, we don't have a temple today. Jesus is with us anywhere that we go. He'll meet with us anywhere we go. We need a roof over our heads as a place to meet together, but we don't even need that to meet with Jesus. I mean, this is good news because that was a big change. It used to be to meet with God, you went to the temple and sometimes his presence would come down. Sometimes he would meet with you there. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm the new temple. I'm the new place that you meet God. And once he rose from the dead, he says, I am with you always. I'll always be with you, even to the end of the age. 
And that can be a source of joy. Even though they mocked him and said, look at this guy claiming to build the temple again, he did build the temple of his body again three days later. And if we'll believe it, it should give us peace and joy. And not only that, but it'll give us a model for how we're supposed to exercise power. Um, Listen to this. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus is talking to his disciples and it says, but Jesus called to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus said that the way that he came, the, one that the, one, the way that the one with ultimate power came, was he came in a way to serve. So here comes this ultimate king with ultimate power, and the way that he displays his power is by dying for us. Not only is Jesus our substitute, and he is, he's also our model for how to wield power in the world. I mean, as Christians, we want to see this city change. We want to see the name of Jesus be made great here. We want everyone in the city to have multiple opportunities to hear about Jesus Christ, to believe in Jesus Christ, and we want to see people convert to Jesus by the thousands. We, we want to see every square inch of this room filled with people who've come to know Jesus, who are praising him and worshiping him for the transformation that he brought in their lives. But the way that we're going to accomplish that will never be by force. It's never going to be by making laws because laws don't change hearts. It's never going to be by trying to force people to convert. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you say the reason I'm not a Christian is because all these Christians were trying to force it down, their, down my throat and force it on me, I'm sorry they tried to do that. Christians, the way that we see the world change is not going to be by force, but it's going to be the way Jesus changed the world. Jesus was bold and spoke truth, and we'll need to do that. And some of the truth that we speak will definitely make us some enemies. But then Jesus served and he loved, and he gave his life. And so the way that we're going to see this city change isn't going to be by forcing them to change. It's going to be by speaking the message of the cross of Jesus, by praying for people, and then laying down our lives and serving people and wielding power the way that Jesus did. That'll make us a whole different kind of people if we live like that. If we're the most generous people in this city with our neighbors, that it might catch their attention so they listen to what we have to say about the gospel of Christ. If we've got the most peace in the middle of trial, in the middle of circumstances, that can change the people as they look and they say, what is it that gives you this peace? We've got a lot of power in the gospel and there's a lot of power that comes with knowing truth. But the way that we wield power should always be the way that Jesus wielded power. So they mocked his crazy claim to have enough power to tear down that temple and build it again in three days. And the truth is, even though they were mocking him, they were speaking truth. Um, They also mocked his claim to be a good conqueror, to be someone who could save. Look at verse 30. They said, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So Jesus had made some big claims. He had claimed that he was the rescuer. He was going to come and save people from their sins. I mean, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, that guy's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sins of the world. They expected that he would rescue, that he would overthrow their oppressors. He was going to come and change everything. They expected that he was going to come and save, and he said that he could come and save. But here he is hanging on a cross. And that seems to undermine any claim to be a savior because he's up there dying. I mean, if you can't even save yourself, they said, 
how could you claim to save other people? You no longer look strong. You no longer look powerful. Now you look like a fool. Uh, when I was in college, uh, there was this guy in our school who was, um, was kind of like the cool guy on campus, and he was, had a reputation for being strong and brave and macho, and there was this girl that he was interested in, and they went for a walk, and so he's you know, trying to um, win her over as they're, they're walking, and he had a group of friends who knew that he was going on this walk with this girl, and so they said, let's do this. And this is a cruel prank that I wouldn't recommend. But um, they, uh, they said, why don't we put on masks and, like, and dress up almost like we're like, robbers in a gang? And this is Springfield, Missouri. There are no gangs in Springfield, Missouri. But they, um, and they said, and let's jump out at, at this guy and just see how he reacts in front of this girl that he's trying to impress. And so, so they're walking down this path. And then all of a sudden, these guys jump out from the woods and, and act all scary. And this guy, he takes the girl, puts her in front of him. And he runs the other way. (laughs) So at that point, any claim to be cool, (laughs) any claim to be awesome goes completely out the window. And um, what's even more crazy is she married him. But it's... uh, (laughs) So so you can kind of put on airs and you can have this image, but the second you're running away and throwing a girl in front of you, you're not that strong anymore. And so here's Jesus. I mean, he, he talked a good game. I mean, he claimed to be God. He claimed he was going to be able to save people, and he's up on a cross. And when you're on a cross, you don't get down from there alive. You die on that cross. So you can talk a good game all you want and say that you're able to save people, but if you can't even save your, yourself, how should we know? How could we ever think that that's legitimate? So they mocked him, but on this side of things, we can see that what they were saying was true. And, it, and it's not that he physically couldn't save himself. I mean, he was God. He could have called 10,000 angels and wiped the world out and said, I'm done with you people. He had the power to save himself for sure, but he wouldn't save himself because that would mean that he couldn't save us. His act of not saving himself was his way of saving us. It'd be almost the equivalent if, you know, I took my daughter to the hospital and something was wrong with her and and the doctor said she's going to need a heart transplant and you're a potential donor. Um, Well, obviously, that means that I'm gone. So I would say, yeah, let's do it. And probably everyone would say that's the right thing to do. You're a dad. You You should do that for your daughter. Probably nobody would mock and say, look at him. He says he can save his daughter, but he can't even save himself. You'd recognize that my act of not saving myself would be my way of saving my daughter. And that's what's going on here in the cross. Um, If if Jesus hadn't died, he wouldn't have been a savior. What he was accomplishing on that cross was the great exchange. He was absorbing the wrath of God that we deserved so that we could have the life of God that should have been his. He was taking all of his righteousness, all of his good works, all the good that he'd ever done and crediting it to our account. And if he hadn't laid down his life on the cross, if he hadn't died for us on the cross, there would have been no way for us to be saved. And if you look at verse 32 again, they said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Yeah, if he came down from the cross, they might believe that he had power. They might believe that he was the king. But ultimately, they'd have nothing to believe in. There wouldn't have been hope. There wouldn't have been any way of rescue, any way of salvation. The sacrifice had to be made on the cross. If if he had come down, they might have believed, but in who? Because Jesus laid down his life, we know that we believe in a great Savior who gave his life so that we could have everlasting life. And that's the last thing they mocked. They, they call him the Christ, but he looked like anything but the Christ. 
The Christ, remember, was the anointed one. He was the one that God said would come to save his people. He was supposed to be a king. He was supposed to be powerful. He was supposed to reign. He was supposed to have some way of rescuing God's people, almost like Moses did. And here's the Christ on the cross. And I say, man, if you're the Christ, why don't you come down? His answer is, the reason I don't come down is because I'm the Christ. In fact, look at what happens next as he accomplishes our redemption. Verse 33, it says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So he's hanging on the cross, and the Bible makes very clear that it was dark. It was dark as the father turned his face away, and as Jesus cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here's Jesus who lived the perfect life and who had perfect fellowship with his father, and he loses while he's on the cross even that. His father forsakes him so that we could be accepted. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry. Another gospel says he yelled, it is finished. And he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So here he is hanging on the cross, and they're mocking him. They're saying, huh, some Christ. And on the cross, he showed what a great Christ he is. He suffered and died. The father turned his face away in displeasure for, the, for our sin that went on to Jesus so that we could receive the pleasure of God and the acceptance of God so that we could be received by God. And so you look at that and you say, I mean, but did Jesus keep his faith? It almost seems like he's pointing a finger at God and he's saying, God, you've forsaken me. You've ditched me here. I mean, can we really say that he suffered well through all of this or is he just suffering like we would? You know, I know there are plenty of times that I'm faithless and it's almost like his words are some of the same things that I say when I'm faithless. I mean, when we got the call a few weeks ago that we were getting evicted from the German house and that we had two weeks to get out and find a new place to meet, that was not like a great moment of faith for me. That was, that was a, okay, God, you've forsaken us. I guess you're done with us. Um, you know, four years, we, that, that's what you gave us. Uh, I guess we're moving on now. I guess you're moving on from us, feeling forsaken by him. I'm faithless like that all the time. So is Jesus being faithless? Well, he's quoting from Psalm 22, and if you could turn there, we're going to finish there today. Psalm 22, starting in verse 1, I just want to show you the psalm that he's quoting from to show you that, that Jesus was there and he did experience the pain of his father turning his face away from him, but he did it faithfully. He actually quotes this psalm that was written by David during a dark night. Things are going badly, where it felt like David had been forsaken by God, but then David wrote this psalm to express the fact that, yeah, it feels like I'm forsaken, But here's the faith that I have. Listen to this. Uh, Psalm 22, verse 1, written uh, hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. But look at verse 3. Yet you are holy. 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Look down at verse 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand of awe of, in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. So Psalm 22 is not a psalm that says, God isn't good. It's a psalm that says there are times that we're forsaken, yet God is holy. And while it can feel like he's abandoned us and he's left us, yet we'll praise him, we'll worship him, his name will be made great among the nations. He's doing something good even with this. So Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22, and it was a dark time on that cross. He felt pain like none of us could have experienced the emotional loss of this perfect fellowship with his father. But even in the psalm he quoted from, you hear his faith. You see Jesus, even on the cross, being faithful in a situation that any one of us would have given up our faith. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. He's the faithful one. He was faithful for us. And so as Christians, we're not people who say that we have it all together and we never doubt, we never get weak, we never have our dark times. We do have our dark times, but even in the times when we're faithless, we look to the one who is faithful for us, even to death, so that we could have everlasting life. And that's good news. They mocked his claim to be Christ, but he was the great and only Christ. They mocked his claim to be king, but he's the only true and good and ultimate king. They mocked his claim to have power to be able to tear down a temple and build it in three days. He showed that he has more power, enough to lay down his life, but then to resurrect three days later. They mocked him and scorned him, and for all the things they mocked him for, we worship him. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. If you're here today and uh, you're a Christian, it's easy for other things to become king. It's easy for other things to become ultimate, to become the things that drive us. And while we would never say that we have some God besides Jesus, we functionally live like we do have gods besides Jesus. There, there's something else that's big and bigger than Christ to us. And so Christians, we need to turn from that. We need to confess again as we look at this picture of Jesus on the cross that Jesus is the only wise king the only true and ultimate king and the only king that we would ever want to reign over us because he does it with wisdom, he does it with grace, and he does it by laying down his life for us. So let's confess the ways that we've made other things ultimate. You know, if you're here and you are far from God, you, you haven't put your faith in Jesus and, and you have any number of reasons that you haven't yet given your life to him, haven't yet received his gift, I hope that in the cross of Jesus you see his heart toward you. You see that he loved you enough to die for you. 
you see that yes, our sin is a big deal. We've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve the wrath of God. But you also see a God who came and pursued us and died so that we could have everlasting life. So I would urge you, if you recognize the weight of your sin and you feel that guilt, turn from sin, turn from unbelief, and turn to Jesus Christ. Turn to him and believe in him and him alone for everlasting life, for redemption, and for healing. And he promises of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. So come to him today. Just in simple faith. The way you come to him is not by working your way there. He, on that cross, did all the work to come to you. It's not by becoming religious. It's not by joining this church or any other church. It's not by following a ritual. It's by simply turning from sin and from unbelief and from other ultimate things and turning to trust in Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection for you. And if you cry out to him in in whatever words you want, but if a cry comes from the heart of, of faith, he'll receive you. He accepts all those who turn to him in simple faith, and he credits everything that happened on the cross to our account. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your death, burial, and resurrection for us. We thank you, Lord, that the temple of your body was torn down, but three days later, you rose from the dead. You have all power, all might, all majesty. You are the only true and wise king. We pray this in your name. Now, during these next couple songs, uh, to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we as Christians, we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, When we take this bread, we're showing the Lord's death until he comes. The bread represents his body that was torn for us. So as we sing these songs at any time, you can come to these two tables in the front, and there's a table up on the side of the balcony, and you can eat that bread to, to remind yourself that the way that we come to God is that the body of Jesus Christ was torn. When you drink from the cup, you're reminding yourself that the blood of Jesus was spilled so that we don't have to have our blood spilled to pay for our sin. And so you can drink from one of the small cups or just dip your bread in the large cup to celebrate the Lord's death until he returns. Uh, If you're here and you have not yet put your faith in Christ and you're not a Christian and you don't feel ready to do that today, you're more than welcome to keep coming, keep getting questions answered, and really every door of our church is open to you. But the Lord's Supper is for those who have trusted in Christ. It is for Christians. Whether our faith is weak or strong really doesn't make a difference when it comes to taking this supper But if you've not yet turned to Christ and trusted in him, I would urge you during these next couple songs to stay in your seat as this is something that's observed uh, by Christians uh, to remind ourselves together of the unity we now have because we put our trust in Christ. Um, So let's pray and then we'll stand and worship in any time during the next couple songs we can take the supper together. Heavenly Father, you are good. You're king, you're Christ, you're a conqueror and every claim you made was true. You keep all your promises. Lord, there's no other king like that. There's no other God like that. There's no other God who who gave his life. And so, Lord, I pray that we would believe that. I pray as we take this Lord's Supper, you would renew our faith in your gospel and send us out of this place as missionaries all over the city, all over these suburbs. Lord, help the, the Christians at Grace Road to fill every corner so that your gospel can fill every corner. And Lord, help us to boldly speak the truth of the message of your cross, but to accompany that with great acts of service and love and laying down our lives for people around us. Lord, we ask that through our faith in the gospel and the changed lives that we live, that you would make us the most life-giving people in this city, uh, transform this city through us into a place where your name is great. And our prayer, Lord, uh, through our meetings here and all that happens during the week as we go out to the circles of influence you've put us in, Uh, Our prayer, Lord, is that 50 years from now, when people tell the story of Rochester, they wouldn't be able to tell it without telling the story of Jesus. 
um, because you made such a big difference in this place through your people, through your word, and through your love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.